Liz O'Neill, my goodness, you have been on the global anti-GMO, non-GMO movement on my team for years and we're meeting for the first time. You Thank you for the work that you do over at the UK. And um, I think the only good thing about the genetically engineered wheat trial that we're going to talk about is that it has brought us together face to face. Thanks, Jeffrey. Yeah, it's really nice to be doing this and, and reaching out. Um, I will say good evening because that's where we are um, on my side of the world. Um, good morning, good afternoon, wherever, wherever you are. Um, but yeah, it's great to connect. I think one of the wonderful things about, um, you know, that the movement for raising concerns about GM is that we do all connect and we do work together because we are facing the same problems in slightly different forms. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the talking points that you deal with were written by the same people who circulate them in the United States and send them to Indonesia and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. <laughs> now we have an interesting thing that people in the UK think, oh, we're a small country. It won't much matter if we create genetically engineered wheat. I'm, I'm going to talk about after you've introduced this crazy idea with the crazy science and the crazy excuses and people will want to hear about this. I'm going to share what's at risk because what happened in Canada and the United States when there was threatened genetically engineered wheat, when there was found field trial contamination. I mean, these guys are playing not just with dynamite. This is global, global implications for economics, but also for environment and, in my particular opinion, most especially human health, which could be a disaster. Why don't you tell everyone what the story is about? What is this genetically engineered wheat? What was the decision by the government and what's going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think I'll start off with it's almost certainly not what's going to happen as what has already happened in that I'm pretty sure this stuff will be in the ground by now. Um, so, um, although the UK has now left the European Union and um, there's a big movement to change our rules, we are still operating under the same rules that we had within the EU. They were converted into UK law, so that's just a bit of bit of a you know sort of legal framing. And um, we don't have any GM crops grown here. We don't have so there's only one that's authorised. So you know there isn't a lot of GM in the ground at one level. But what the UK has been doing a lot of for the past several years is field trials. So these are um, open air trials. They're at you know they're not farm scale, but they are a field. You know they're at a decent size. And um, this is, is the latest of many. So there are a, a, quite a large number of trials running. And um, this one is run by an organization called Rothamsted Research, who are doing several of the other trials, along with a couple of other organizations. And um, this is this year's new toy. Uh, we are referring to it as burnt toast GM wheat. Burnt because toast. I love, by the way, your messaging was great. I was like, burnt toast. Everyone, oh, yeah. burnt toast GM wheat. Let's find out why. This is, I love your word. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so the whole point of this is to do with the scourge of burnt toast, which is just <laughs> such a problem, you know? And, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell their, their story first to some extent, you know, they are what those who put this stuff in the ground will say is that they have reduced 
um, the amount of asparagine that's produced um, by the sweet. So it's it's um, free asparagine, it's, which is one of the amino acids. Um, and when wheat, potatoes, a few other things are cooked at very high temperatures, some of the asparagine gets converted into acrylamide. And um, what they're doing is producing weed, which apparently is going to have low acrylamide levels so that your burnt toast will be healthier. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. I have to say, I start with, could you not just learn to use a toaster? <laughs> no, this does seem somewhat easier. So um, it's, like, it's like a GMO wheat, let's poison the world for the toaster challenged. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm quite dyspraxic, so I do burn toast, but do you know what you can do? You can get a knife and you can scrape the burnt bits off. You know, we've it. all I've done, done it. it. We've yeah, all yeah. done it. And then you can learn to turn the toaster down a little bit. Do you know my teenagers can make toast without burning it now? So it's... <sighs> and burnt toast is not tasty. So if someone says, oh, it's genetically engineered weight, I can burn my toast and eat it too. It's like... Do you really want to? Anyway, so yeah, this is you know, this is a, this is like creating uh, genetically engineered apples that don't turn brown when sliced. That was their big and release of GMO apples in the United States, which could reprogram human DNA according to the technology. Anyway, go ahead. Well, do you know it's funny? It's interesting you bring up the apples because I think there is an interesting parallel here in that you know it's not that the apples don't age it's that they don't brown right it's like you know there's various non-browning things you know it's not that they're not damaged it's that they don't show their natural response to damage so we so when they hide the rage my, my friend andy kimbrell told me they call it the botox apple because it hides its age <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> so you know it's not quite the same thing with this week but you know Burning food is going to destroy lots of nutrients. Burning food is not a good idea for many, many reasons. And, you know, it's this idea they've picked up on this one thing. Now, you know, what they're referring to is that there are, you know, there are various considerations around acrylamide. It is possible that it's in some way associated with cancer risk. But, you know, Cancer Research UK, so this is by far the biggest cancer charity over, you know, on this side of, of the Atlantic, say, just like really overtly on their website, burnt food does not give you cancer. You do not need to avoid, you know, cooking food to a higher degree in order to, but, you know, what you need is a healthy, balanced diet. You know, it's the boring message, isn't it? And that's, I think that's the problem here is that actually we all know what you need to do to be healthy. We know how to reduce cancer risk, you know, have a healthy, keep a healthy weight, eat a healthy, balanced diet, lots of fruit and veg, don't smoke. It's been the same for a long time and it's quite boring because do you know what? That's actually what it really is. That's why it's been the same for a long time because it's the truth. You know, it's um, kind of like golden rice. It's like if you put on the plate all these things with high vitamin A, sweet potatoes, this thing, this thing, amaranth, all these things, right? It says, oh yeah, you want vitamin A, do that. Um, if you are needing supplementation for a nickel a year, you can take two pills yeah. you know, every six months or one pill every six months. 
But let's take rice, which doesn't have vitamin A, and genetically engineer it and make a pathway that's changed that's linked to birth defects. And we'll call it golden rice, feed it to the world without proper human feeding trials, and say, you need to feed this to the world to save children from going blind. Actually, it's only people that aren't looking that would support this. And it, no. what's what I find extraordinary, you know, as you've brought up the golden rice thing, to me there is it just there is something utterly morally repugnant about that whole positioning. The thing that is wrong in that scenario is that people are living on rice. That's the only thing that's wrong at the start of that. And so instead of addressing the root causes of poverty, addressing the distribution of food, addressing access to a healthy, balanced diet, they go, oh, I know, let's biofortify rice. Let's make, let's make that rice that people are living on just a tiny, weeny bit better for them. And it's only better if they eat fats at the same time because you can't you can't digest the beta carotene unless you have fats. And oops, the people who eat live on rice don't have fats in their diet. So it's all a boondoggle. But it doesn't matter because the beta carotene will degrade over time while it's stored and then provide, if it does work, less than what they would uh, need anyway. I was at the Norman Borlaug um, talks uh, with the World Food Prize in Des Moines years ago. And... They, they like put, you know, Norman Borlaug on a pedestal as kind of a deity. Um, and they talk, you know, he created the, the types of wheat and rice that require lots of chemicals. Mm-hmm. And then they can grow a large amount in a small area. And they claim it saved India. Well, now everyone who's done any research knows actually it didn't save India. There wasn't, uh, it didn't reverse famine. It was a complete um, marketing hype but these researchers in the belly of the beast with all these borlaug worshippers reported that malnutrition dramatically increased after the borlaug grains came because now people were buying the inexpensive grains and not the complete and balanced diet so as the inexpensive grains were made available the malnutrition went up so it not only didn't save it actually damaged the nutrition levels. So I think you're absolutely right about, it's like, I remember right before the World Food Prize in Des Moines, there was a meeting among the world's experts in feeding feeding the world. Mm -hmm. Um, The people that wrote the UN ISTAD report that determined that GMOs have nothing to offer to feed the hungry world, eradicate poverty, create sustainable agriculture. I interviewed the co-chairman, I interviewed all those people. And like, I'd ask them simply, does GMO help, feed the world and it's like no no over 400 scientists wrote that report and it was again this narrow-minded soundbite science that doesn't take into account the reality doesn't take into account systems you see gmos require such a narrow focus of not paying attention to systems that everything about it the marketing the purpose the safety assessments also put those blinders on but it's not the real world so tell me, um, what are some of the objections you raised to the government that they ignored when they allowed this wheat to come through? Yeah, so, I mean, we do, what 
Jim Freeze put, put in a, you know, a substantial objection uh, that was signed on by a number of other organisations. And we also supported individuals to do the same. Um, we, we understand they had about 90 um, responses, which is a lot for this kind of thing. It's very technical and the consultation period is six weeks. So, you know, that's that's not very long to deal with two documents that are sort of 30, 40 pages each and then make sense of them and, and respond. So, you know, wheat does always get a strong response. And I think we did we always talk about you know, the primacy of wheat, wheat really is such a staple. You know, I think that's that's probably very similar in the States, but certainly, you know, in the UK. You know, bread is absolutely central to our diet. You know, I mean, I had a, I had a, a, a filled bagel for my lunch, and I had some pasta for my, for my tea. You know, it's this is this is perfectly normal behaviour. You know, we we eat a lot of wheat, and we feel very connected to it. So I think, you know, there is there is a greater objection to messing with wheat at all, and that is. <laughs> multiplied just thousands fold by the leakiness of wheat. We know that when wheat has been trialed, when GM wheat has been trialed, it has got out. And I think, you know, you, you probably have lived more of that experience than me, so you can probably talk more about that. So we, you know, we, we raised a lot of that stuff. But we also looked at, you know, the fine molecular points with this project. And I'm going to share a quote from somebody who I won't name because I haven't asked them first, but somebody who, you know, threw in some technical support on, on assessing this particular trial. And she said, this is like a school project. This is like an unfinished school project. And that was on first reading. Now, interestingly, I understand that the, the lead researcher actually did use this work for her PhD. So our friend's assessment was, was accidentally on the money um, because she didn't, didn't actually know that at the time. Now, you know, people can do great things with their PhDs, but most don't. Most are partway, partway through their learning at that point. You know, it's just a staging post. And, you know, this... This trial is nowhere, this, this experiment is nowhere near ready for field trial. The, the genetic mutations are not stable. They're very open about that. And they're, um, it's being portrayed as you know, the first genome edited trial in the UK, which is itself a bit weird because we had one a couple of years ago, um, uh, which there's a whole other story about, which we can get to if we have time. If not, then next time. Um, but, you know, as much is being made of that in the press. But actually, it's transgenic. So, you know, the changes that are, have, have happened have involved the insertion of DNA from other species. And the aim, the idea, is that that will be bred out by the end of this trial. But it hasn't happened yet. You know, they're still doing that. They're still going through that process. But, you know, my absolute favourite part of this is that so they're, they're reducing the, um, the asparagine, the free asparagine in the wheat um, in order to, you know, have less, less of that available to be converted into acrylamide. They discovered and this is this isn't just a little paragraph in the application they discovered 
that um, it didn't germinate very well. And what do you think they did to improve the germination? What do you think they put on it? A topical application of asparagine. <laughs> you're like, okay, so you found out that the thing you're trying to reduce obviously does other, other stuff because, I don't know, nature's quite smart and things don't tend to be in an organism that don't do a job. You know, everything is pretty much there for a purpose. And, you know, they discovered that that's, you know, it wasn't there just to, to make your burnt toast a bit controversial. It's actually there doing a job. Um, so, you know, great. That's great science. They've discovered one of the things that it does, probably just one of the things. Um, but because that's a problem, they, they're going to overcome the lack of asparagine that they created with their, their genetic modification by having a topical application of asparagine. And they also haven't done any testing to see whether that asparagine will still be in the grain when it's milled and whether it will then convert to <laughs> acrylamide when it's in. You're like, hang on a minute, how is this science? Like, this is so circular. This is totally exactly what I would expect of a university project, you know. You know, it's working this stuff out it's kind of interesting but don't put it in a field don't grow it and have it pollinate and spread on the wind it's it's a disaster by the way is it true that asparagine helps male sexual performance i couldn't possibly comment i've been married for 19 years so, <laughs> um. the thing is if it did you can just say the the, the bread that makes you impotent. I don't know. That's that's another angle we can. I, I've heard something. I haven't I haven't looked into that in detail. We didn't put it in our in our objection. Well, I, maybe I, it should I'll... be on social media darn soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so let me let me put a little this this outdoor release into context. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to start with uh, one of my favorite examples of un, um, unexpected outcomes from outdoor releases, mm -hmm. which actually isn't genetic engineering. It's releasing rabbits. They took, you know, a lot of Brits were in Australia and they're used to hunting rabbits. And so a, in 1859, someone released 24 rabbits so the visiting Brits would feel more at home. Well, rabbits multiply like rabbits. And by 1920s, there was about 10 billion of them, which had destroyed the uh, environment there in a big way. Um, and that's an example of just not paying attention to the system. Now, Originally, when GMOs were being contemplated for release, an executive from one of the GMO companies, Syngenta, testified that you would no more likely be contaminated. A, a non-GM crop would no more likely be contaminated by a GM crop than someone getting pregnant from a toilet seat. This was her media you know, statement that it could be you know, broadcast around the world with that level of definitiveness. And now everyone knows that GM crops pollinate and contaminate non-GM crops. So now it's like inevitable, but it doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter in the following ways. First of all, it's permanent. Once you release it, if it gets out there, you can never recall it. Second, it's unpredictable. You already said that it wasn't stable. It can mutate. It's possible that it can change their transfer genes, especially microbes, but even, even the wheat and plants can transfer genes to other 
related species and to microbes and fungus. So now you've created a new genetic combination with a new trait, and you now have put it into ecosystems and plants that you never anticipated. Then you have this little thing called economic consequences. We'll get to the health in just a minute. So I used to work at a GMO detection laboratory 22 years ago. And I was like the second person in the world, because the lab called me, I was the, the vice president of marketing communications, called me and said, um, we just discovered Starlink corn in craft taco shells for our client. And I said, don't tell the client yet, test it again. Make sure, make double sure. They tested it, they sequenced it, it was absolutely sure. Then we released it to our client who told the world and it cost a billion dollars because Starlink was not approved for human consumption. Mm -hmm. And the EPA, the brain cell at the EPA said, oh, we'll just release it for animal feed and not for human consumption. I'm sure that the farmers could deal with sorting it out. That, and it's like, this was so stupid. It got into the human food chain. It was more than 300 products were subject to recall. And what happened was very interesting. It was the first major contamination. This was in 2000. Every major corn import market from the US shut its doors. The cost on the industry was devastating. And you'd think they'd learn their, their lessons, but then genetically engineered corn that wasn't approved in China cost about $2 billion. Genetically engineered flax that wasn't approved anywhere was being grown throughout Canada. It closed their markets. The canola market for Canada was closed here. All these different markets shut their doors because certain products were not approved. So there was this little wheat in a field, I think in Oregon or Washington State, one of those two where they discovered it, that it was genetically engineered. And it was announced and there was this preparation to shut down all export markets for US and Canadian wheat, because they kind of like, it's a region, we gotta be careful. And they checked and they checked and they couldn't find any, so it was like a, a disaster averted. There might've been a disruption just for a few days. But if it gets out, and it contaminates wheat in a particular country. And it doesn't have to necessarily be the UK. It could be the UK wheat production, which is probably not very profound, but it ends up going somewhere else. Then it could, it could destroy an economy. To give an example, when the wheat industry in North America was considering accepting, uh, not, I think Roundup Ready wheat years ago, there was a analysis done about export markets and they determined that if they introduced gm wheat anywhere in canada they'd lose 86 percent of their export markets and people in the united states looked at what happened with the introduction of gm corn the reduction of markets and the need to increase the subsidies of the corn that no one wanted and they figured if it happened if they introduced gm wheat there'd be such a decline in the cost of wheat if they didn't get the subsidies They'd be using maybe 30% of their harvest to feed animals. It's not normally fed animals, but it would be so inexpensive because it would be a disaster. And so all of the wheat industry said, okay, we're not going to have this happen. Then documents that I'd seen from Monsanto, some secret documents, just laid out 
their plan to infiltrate the wheat industry. And over years, they courted and infiltrated and gave money to organizations so that they had champions inside the wheat growers so that the Wheat Growers Association would say, we need this wheat because it's going to save the wheat. And this is what they do. It's the same kind of battle cry this happened in for canola, genetically engineered canola in Australia. I met with, you know, health ministers of all these different uh, states, and I said, if you do this, if you release it, you will lose markets. The price will go down. It will contaminate, and it did it, exactly what we predicted because it happens that way every every year. That happens every 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 region. So it turns out that if and now there's people in, in the wheat industry claiming that they want GM wheat. And if they did, it could have that same kind of disaster. So they really want GM wheat to go everywhere so people have no choice and they're forced to take it. My friend Don Huber, who uh, is a professor emeritus from Purdue University, he tested Roundup on wheat and it creates head blight, a fungal disease, because mm -hmm. Roundup promotes fungal-based pathogens or fungal pathogens. And so it could be a disaster, but Roundup is also sprayed on wheat just before harvest to dry it down and, and to promote ripening. And that's linked to all sorts of diseases, Roundup and the food. There's a correlation between celiac disease and the amount of Roundup sprayed on wheat. People think that it's not just the, the wheat itself that's causing celiac and other types of gluten sensitivities, but there's evidence suggesting that glyphosate-based herbicides can increase the sensitivity. We can talk about that another time. I've written a paper about it, and there's other papers now that are published. So what we're talking about is way beyond a release of rabbits in Australia. It's a release of a new organism that has never been tested, that can have new allergens, new toxins, can have different growing patterns, can mutate and destroy the wheat or the ecosystem. And there's some PhD student that got the ear of those trying to push GMOs. Mm -hmm. And because it's something like, oh, this is innocuous. Isn't this great? It'll prevent cancer from burnt toast. Let's scare everyone, create a problem that doesn't exist and create a solution to solve it. And we'll just do this in a small field trial because it's like the rabbits that make Britain visitors feel more comfortable. This is a time bomb. Over to you. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. And I think kind of, one of the things that's quite interesting um, sort of relating to that is the response that uh, that DEFRA's relevant committee gives. So DEFRA is Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. That's in the UK government. This stuff gets a little bit complicated because we have the devolved um, nations within the UK who, who look after some of this stuff for themselves. But um, there's a committee of, of DEFRA called ACRE, um, the Advisory Committee on Releases to the Environment, and they are the people who assess these trials. Um, because of Brexit, they are also in all likelihood going to be the same people who will assess any applications for commercial growing. So the way they respond to these trials is, is, is feeling all the more important. And I've done a lot of trial objections in my time in this, this job. I've been um, director of GM Freeze for seven years and it's it's a kind of recurring theme within my work that, that I do. We, we, we have a whole process for it now. I have a lovely Gantt chart to get it organised. I do love a chart. Um, because believe me, six weeks is not long to get these objections in. Um, and 
there's a real pattern to the, you know, what's wrong with the trials and therefore the, what we raise and what ACA says in response. And one of the most common things that they say that they said a lot with this one is, that's not relevant because it's a trial. That's not relevant because it's a trial. And there's just this extraordinary faith in the idea that scale is a safety measure. And if, you know, maybe that would be the case with rabbits. Yeah, rabbits breed, but, you know, you only grow with however many you have. You really did just start with two and you, you kept them in a pen of a certain size, then they would probably stop after a certain point. There wouldn't be room for a start. But, you know, genetics isn't like that. DNA is like that. It takes one. It takes one escape. You know, one seed, one grain of pollen, it's not, you know, scale is not a protector. Obviously, you know, growing at greater scale brings other risks, but, it, you know, just being relatively small scale does not mean it won't escape. And, no. you know, it's, it's all down to this sort of playing the numbers game, playing the chances. Um and it, it's not good enough, do you know? And they're not, they also, do you know, they, they refuse to engage. We, we, we keep making wider points because we think it's important that they are made. But, you know, they say, well, it doesn't matter whether or not it's actually, you know, addressing a real problem. One of the things we well, I think I'll just, I shall, I'll find it here and I'll quote properly. We said, do you know, the proposed field trial is unlikely to provide any public benefits because genetics are unlikely to be an effective means of reducing free asparagine levels and GM wheat with reduced free asparagine levels will not provide any significant public benefit because Cancer Research UK says it's not a problem. So, you know, we raise those issues and the response back is that's out of scope for the trial. All that we assess is, you know, is this trial in this space on the assumption that it won't escape going to do direct harm? And that's not how the world works. You know, A, you can't prevent escape. And B, once something is allowed at one scale, if they've got over that first hurdle, it's easier to get through the next. At what point Will these issues be addressed? When will they be in scope? And we never get an answer to that. Um, and I think another thing to bear in mind is that we've, we've seen, there's been a really interesting thing with the, the UK press in the last few weeks. Um, the sort of highbrow newspapers um, have carried letters from various scientists, various genetic modification you know, promoters of, uh, in various institutions. Um, talking about slightly different aspects, but always mentioning this trial and how great it is. And you know, really, it really isn't that great science. It really, you know, it, there's a lot that you're kind of thinking, oh, that doesn't seem ready to me. Um, and it's really not the norm for, you know, a senior scientist at institution A to write to the newspapers to say how great it is that institution B, who they compete with for research funding, has got a field trial running. So, you know, that raises with me the question of what's the purpose of this trial? Is this about breaking down barriers? Is this about, you know, making people feel more positive about GM? Because that's what it seems like to me. You know, it doesn't seem like a, a genuine 
piece of science. It doesn't seem like a genuine endeavor. It seems like a chance to get yet another thing into the ground. I'm going to go uh, on a limb here, which is not too, not too risky, and put this in the context that you and I both know. Um, a, the introduction of GM wheat could be a catastrophe. It could theoretically be an, un, an irreversible contamination of a staple food product. Mm -hmm. Given time, it could travel around the world and be a disaster. I mean, imagine if it creates some kind of new disease, because we didn't talk about the massive collateral damage that occurs as a result of the process of gene editing and the possibility that there's new allergens and toxins and anti-nutrients that have never been properly characterized. And it sounds like given the terrible science behind the wheat, they certainly didn't do the, the genome and the transcriptome and the proteome and the metabolome. And I mean, it's like they just ignore all the things that can go wrong, pretend that it's the only change is what they intended it to, have to be and putting everyone at risk that might be eating it. So the disaster is potentially enormous, but it pales in comparison to the disaster brewing by your DEFRA government department as they are about three months behind in the expected statement is whether they're going to, quote, deregulate, mean completely turn the other way around all gene-edited organisms. The biotech industry, they had a big meeting, I think it was in Bulgaria many years ago, and they said their number one goal is to try and get the new gene editing technologies to be accepted by governments and consumers. And so they're lying about it. They're lying and saying it's safe and predictable and just like breeding and it's natural and it shouldn't be regulated. And they're trying to get the UK government to, to say that. Now, the UK government, if, if they release, as we think they may, a saying, okay, we're going to abdicate our responsibility, they're not going to say it that way, of reviewing any gene-edited organism. You can release microbes, plants, animals, whatever you want. You can do it out of your basement. You can do it in a high school lab. It doesn't matter because it's just, it's just natural. It's not going to make any changes. Once they release that, if they do, this comes along as an example. And around the same time, where everyone's trying to say squirrel, pointing over there saying, it's not real. It's not real. It's just these, it's just like this bread, which will help you not get cancer if it burns in your toast. That's what we're talking about. It's very simple. So it becomes the, mm -hmm. the, the an excuse to di divert the conversation to the potential for gene editing to replace nature to eliminate the products of the billions of years of evolution and replace virtually everything with DNA with a technology that's so cheap and easy you can buy a do-it-yourself kit on Amazon for $169. So there, this, is, this is so much more dangerous, so much more dangerous because they've already convinced the UK government is, would just be following suit from Japan and Aust Argentina and Australia and the US and in large part and in Brazil where they basically don't look at gene editing. They say, oh, we don't have anything to do with that. You know, a, a gene edited uh, non-browning mushroom. The USDA said, not our problem. EP the FDA says, oh, is this never our problem? EPA says, no, nope, not our problem. So that means you can gene edit things and put it in the food supply or in the environment. And it's not the government's problem. It's just the problem of all future generations and all living beings. So I think what we're facing here 
is a very conscious um, media example, kind of like golden mm -hmm. rice that makes no sense. It doesn't solve a problem. It raises potential catastrophes of, uh, and it takes money away from more appropriate uh, mm -hmm. uses of, of real money that can, they can nourish and save the world. Or this is like toasters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Save your toasters. Wow. This is really great. Liz, I'm so glad we got to this stage because this sort of lands with it. It's like, yeah. there's so much that doesn't make sense. It's like, are the people in Acre stupid? And it's like, well, if they were told that they have to assume that there's no release in the field trial, that no animal will come and eat it, that no bird will eat it and then poop the seeds, that the wind won't blow it, that there's no wheat within any appreciable distance where the pollen can travel. And so if they're making this stupid assumption that it's actually contained, they're forced to be stupid. We can't say that the people making these decisions are stupid. The people wow. making the assumptions that are forcing them to make these determinations they are probably not stupid. They are probably manipulating the science. There's the liars and the lied too. There's the people that go in there and say, let's dumb down all assessments using assumptions that we know aren't true, but then we don't have any protocols or precedents established that we have to do really any work. This is how GMOs are assessed now around the world because people dumb down the assessment so much it couldn't possibly find anything wrong. And so now you can just get them on the market pretty quickly. So anything, Liz, you want to share before we wrap up here? I think we, we beat this wheat into flour. Yeah, hopefully we have. I mean, I think just really to pick up on, on you know, this issue of, of the, the DEFRA consultation, I think, you know, in case some of some of the watching this are not aware. So this is the UK government that has um, control over farming in England. So they are the UK government, they, they do have jurisdiction in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but actually on farming, they only have jurisdiction in England. And they are proposing to remove from GM regulation forms of genome editing that could have been produced through natural, through, through traditional breeding. I think that's the phrasing, which means nothing. It, it, you know, it, it's not a scientific definition at all. Of course, it's not a scientific de definition. It was written by politicians, and very few politicians actually have a scientific education. You know, it's really rare for, for scientists to go into politics, and maybe we need some more of our scientists to do that. Um, but, you know, it's quite the most extraordinary proposal because it doesn't make scientific sense it doesn't make political sense for the uk because scotland and wales are much more gm skeptical than the westminster government and northern ireland has to do what brussels says so you know that that's all quite bonkers and you know the size of the uk really were pretty small certainly compared to the States, you know, that there are many border and cross-border farms. So, you know, and that the, the food supply chains are absolutely integrated across the UK. So it doesn't make sense politically. And 
And, you know, it is not popular. We don't know what DEFRA are going to say when they issue their report in the consultation, but I have seen a lot of submissions that went into it. And some very surprising voices have raised concerns about the model. You know, lots of the, the GM scientists have actually said that this could have been produced through natural or through traditional breeding doesn't make sense. You know, nobody likes what the government says. I mean, maybe that's that's where we're united. We all dislike it for different reasons, but we all dislike it. Um, so, you know, it, whether it was put there as a straw man to be pulled apart and the government's going to hope to find something to rescue from it, I don't know. But we live in, you know, we do live in fear of what they're going to come out with next because it's, just an extraordinary proposal put forward in an extraordinary and really, you know, unacceptable consultation format where really, the, you know, they're pretty much saying, yeah, we've decided we like this. We're right, aren't we? And we <laughs> there, no, no, you're not. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, keep your eyes open on what's happening here. It's, you know, there's that, that curse, isn't there, that we live in interesting times. Right, the Chinese curse. We certainly curse. do, <laughs> you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's like the people who are listening um, to our conversation may, may not have um, a lot of experience hearing the GMO activists talk amongst themselves. And we have been, you know, studying the science and we have our scientists that we go to that do the evaluation and it's like we are actually pretty like basically 100 percent confident that this stuff is dangerous 100 percent confident that we can't that this stuff is unpredictable uh can change in other words the science actually is on the side of precaution the science actually is and so we end up like just shaking our heads on the incredible inanity, the, the, the ridiculousness, nature, ridiculous nature of the regulations. But that's why I spend a lot of my time exposing the approval process and the captured regulatory agencies mm. to explain how it is that such stupidity can be systematized. Because in the US, it's not the politicians who actually write those bills, it's industry that writes the bills and sends them to the to their congressperson or senator that they're supporting financially um, through campaign donations and whatnot that they've lobbied. And so they get to write it in such a way that gives them the greatest freedom. And then they create um, ways of marginalizing opposition saying, oh, those who are calling for more science, they're anti-science. You know, it's not doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So it gives an insight for people watching to what we go through all the time, looking at the science on the one hand, common sense on the other, and way over there is regulation, un unrelated to reality. Mm -hmm. I think we'll leave it there, Liz. I wanna say you are the director of GM Freeze in yeah. the UK. Yeah. Uh, and you're in Manchester, is that right? I am, yes. And can you tell everyone the website? Yes, we are www if we're still saying that i quite like saying it like the old days gmfreeze.org we're very very basic all right gmfreeze.org <laughs> like simple and easy to remember and we have put links i believe our our team of social people have put links Excellent. in the description also to the gm wheat 
articles that you had very much to yeah. do with. In fact, I tracked you down with your burnt toast. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Liz. And we and make sure everyone to like the 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 Institute for Responsible Technologies Facebook page because we're going to return with the results from the DEFRA consultation yeah. to see if they in fact are going to put the world at risk. And then maybe we'll see the EU saying, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to close the doors to, to all produce because if you're not going to indicate what's genetically and what's gene edited, we don't want any of your produce. And then they're going to go, hmm, didn't think about that. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Liz, so it's much. Been for told. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. It's been lovely. All right. Safe eating, everyone. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.